I too am going to go back to a little foundational scripture that we love to quote. Let's get Isaiah 9. Verse number 6. And I have quite a few scriptures too, but I'm not going to apologize since the word is my source. I figure it can address the issues better than we ever could. But in Isaiah 9 and 6, and this is the Living Bible Translation. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And these will be his royal titles, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And with that, let's get John 14, verse number 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And my topic for this message is peace, rest in God. We use chapter 9 of Isaiah, that's oneness people love to use it because we use it to defend our oneness position. And if you were to back up a couple of chapters in chapter 7, verse number 14, it's one of our messianic scriptures that we use, that a woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. Now, chapter 7 tells the woman what to name the child, but chapter 9 tells us what the people of the child call the child. Mary named him one thing. But once Jesus started his ministry on earth, he went to the cross, he paid the price, went back to heaven, he poured out the Holy Ghost. Now he has some other titles now. The woman called him Emmanuel. That's what he was named. He shall save his people from their sins. But here, chapter 9 tells us this is going to be what the people call him. In other words, it's the same I am that he revealed himself to in Moses. I'm going to be what I want to be. Chapter 14 of St. John. The peace that we see in the child as the prince of peace. And I think it's interesting and I don't have an answer for this, but I'm just going to throw out the question. Why would he be called the prince of peace and not the king of peace? Sometimes I wonder why the scriptures word things in a certain way. The best thing I, I, I searched and I thought and I searched and I thought and that the best thing that I could think of was that a prince means that there's an inheritance. That means that there's something to pass down. Some kings are kings and they don't have sons. But this is the son of a king. In other words, the peace that he embodies is a peace that goes from generation to generation. So he says here in 14 and 27, peace I leave with you, but he doesn't stop there. Now he puts ownership on the peace that he's leaving them. It's my peace. It's not your peace. It's my peace. It's the peace that Jesus had. And we'll get into a little later uh, what level of peace, how deep his peace went, and how strangely he acted when he should have been walking around pulling his hair out. He was calm, steady at the helm. Which is why we need to recognize him as the Prince of Peace, because now we need that peace to be passed down to us. 
Some definitions. First, uh, I'll go to the dictionary. Merriam-Webster says that peace is a state of tranquility or quiet. It means freedom from civil disturbance, freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions. It also means harmony in personal relations. The Cambridge Dictionary says calm and quiet. It's a lack of interruption or of being annoyed by worry, problems, noise, or unwanted actions. I'll read that one again. It means calm and quiet or a lack of, inter- uh, a lack of interruption or of being annoyed. Now, Not that you're not ever annoyed, but you're not annoyed by worry, problems, noise, or unwanted actions. Now, right there, we, we could really take a selah and just kind of go back over our lives. Some of them don't have to go back far. Some of them only need to go to last night. Somebody probably couldn't sleep through the night because they were so annoyed. Peace is a vital part of a Christian's life. Without it, we simply are not whole. We love to quote, I believe it's uh, Colossians 2. Be not deceived. Watch out when people try to spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of the world, uh, rudiments of the world, traditions of men, and not after Christ. And in a couple of verses he said, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In order for that scripture to work, we have to have peace working in our spirits. So without peace, our confession of so-called faith is shallow and void. Spiritually, it is a sense of well-being and fulfillment that comes from God and is dependent on his presence. Spiritual peace is, is equated with salvation and consequently its lack or its absence is equated with spiritual judgment or eternal judgment. It is available to all who trust in God and love his law. The Bible says great peace have they that love thy law. Peace is identified with a righteous life apart from which no one is able to find true peace. And because of this, the Bible often mentions righteousness and it ties it with peace. And it's often linked with justice. Righteousness, peace, and justice are usually all, if they're not mentioned together, they're hinted at when they're mentioned. To be at peace means to be upright, faithful, an upholder of truth, and to practice justice. The more I've been digging into the word lately, it seemed like these last several years, I keep coming to the theme of the Bible. And we know the theme of the Bible really is salvation in Jesus Christ. But so much of God's annoyance with sin is really it really wasn't the so-called acts of sin. Most of the time when he had a problem with Israel, with the Old Testament people, 
it was because they were not just they they were not just in their decision making. They they let a lot of stuff go, a lot of things happen without them justifying or penalizing the the guilty parties. And we're back in that time today. How how could a a, a sex offender who will admittedly want to say I want to have sex with children and do so, and we give him four years in prison? Now you you got somebody that's blatantly telling you. I want to harm little kids when the Bible says that anybody that's guilty of, of harming one of these little ones, Jesus himself said it's better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and dropped into the bottom of the sea. That's because that would be his justice. But our justice says, OK, four years, we'll let you out and try it again. This is what makes God so angry. And this is why there's a lack of peace in our society. Because justice is not tied to it. Throughout the Old Testament, spiritual peace is realized in relationship. It's when people are rightly related firstly to God and then to each other. This idea also carries over to the uh, New Testament. Let's get Hebrews 12. Verse number 14. This is from the message translation. Work at getting along with each other. And with God. Otherwise, you'll never get so much as a glimpse of God. Now, there's another moment we need to step back and say, all right. Boy, we got some work to do. Now, I was thinking the other week, somebody was preaching a message. I don't know who it was. But they quoted the scripture, be ye holy for I am holy. And I thought in my spirit, my spirit said, I'm so glad that the Bible says, be ye holy and not be ye perfect. He didn't say be ye sinless. He said, be ye holy. Holy means that you're separated to God. It just means that you have a commitment to him. Sometimes that commitment has bumps in the road. Sometimes we get off kilter. We get off base. We, we lose our way. But the Bible, but you're still holy unto him because he has separated you out unto himself. When he called you by your name, that was an act of holiness on God's part for you. Now, some, you know, they've meant to, that scripture to be that you got to be perfect, but he didn't say be ye perfect. It just means be separated unto God. That means when you slip, Get back up and realize, okay, I don't belong here. I've been called higher than this. This is where the church has to be careful not to kick people out of the church if they make a mistake. Like we said earlier, those that are strong, restore. God is in the restoration business. Because he says, if, if we can't get along, now, now you know, we... We hear on one side, you got to learn how to take stuff off of. But the people that are saying you got to learn to take stuff off, they don't want you to take. They don't want to take nothing off of you. So we tend to kind of rub up against each other the wrong way. We, we say things that ought not be said. We do things that shouldn't be done. When you're wrong, say I'm wrong and mend the, the relationship. Otherwise, that stuff is going to start stacking up. So he says, work at getting along with each other and with God. Otherwise, you won't get so much as a glimpse of God. 
Now you won't sit. You can't even peek through the door. All right, 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 11. Paul says, I close my letter with these words, with these last words. Be happy. Now, we like that part. We want to we be happy. Then he says, grow in Christ. Pay attention to what I have said. Live in harmony and peace. Now, harmony, sometimes some people think is unity. Harmony and unity do two different things. Harmony is what makes music beautiful. This we most of us like to hear choirs sing. Well, the thing about choirs is that everybody's doing their own part. It would be rather boring if the keyboard player, the bass player, the guitar player, the drummer, the, the, the lead singer, the altos, the tenor, and the soprano all did the exact same note the entire song. So the power in harmony is that when everybody could do their part for the bigger picture. This is when we have to respect people's differences. We talk about wanting to have peace. Peace is one of the fruit of the spirit. It's the third one mentioned. Let's get Galatians 22. I'm sorry. Uh, Galatians 5. 22. This is the Living Bible Translation. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here he names nine. Then he says, and here there is no conflict with Jewish laws. Note that the flesh produces works. Before this, he gives the works of the flesh. And then you would think, okay, since he's talking about works, why wouldn't he say the works of the spirit? The flesh has works, but the spirit has fruit. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. The nine graces here are evenly divided into three categories. Note that these are not produced by the believer but by the spirit that resides in the believer. They're the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the saint, the fruit of the spirit. Some of us like to go and show off our apples and oranges. It's not your fruit. It's his fruit. Now, the first three, they're divided in three categories by threes. The first three habits are habits of the mind and they are Godward. It's how you relate to God. The first three mentioned, which is love, joy, and peace. The second three reach out to others and are manward. And they are fortified by the first three. And those are patience, kindness, and goodness. Then the third three, they're self-work. And it guides the general conduct of a believer who is led by the Spirit. And then those are faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we, we only have time to deal with, with, I'm dealing with the third one, which is peace. But right now, I'm going to deal with the three so we can get to the peace and see how peace comes about. First one he mentions is love. Love is listed first because it is the foundation of other graces. God is love and loves the world. In fact, he loved the world so much that he what? 
gave his only begotten son. Such self-sacrificing love that sent Christ to die for sinners is the kind of love that believers who are spirit-controlled should manifest. The second one, joy, is a deep and abiding inner rejoicing. She mentioned this earlier, which was promised to those who abide in Christ. With that, let's pick up John 15, verse number 11. And Jesus says here, I have told you so, that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your cup of joy will overflow. Let me get that in the King James because I actually like the way it says it there. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Here we have a jailing of two different joys. If his joy is not in you, your joy can never be full. So we got to remember that, that Jesus, when he took on flesh, he, he took on a real body that had real emotion, that had real human experiences. The way he expressed himself was very human. He was very God and very man at the same time. So the joy that he had, in fact, one point, it said that he rejoiced when, the, when he talked about how their names were written in heaven, which correlates with scripture because the scripture also tells us that when one comes to repentance, there's rejoicing in heaven in the midst of the angels. So his joy remaining in us causes our joy to be full. It does not depend on circumstances because it rests in God's sovereign control of all things. In other words, you, most of us really shouldn't have to say, I have joy because... No, it's simply I have joy for the fact that you are who you are in Christ. That should spark joy right there. That should last from now to the rapture or if he calls you home first. What happens with us is sometimes we want our our joy to, to have a different value than he placed on it. We don't center it around him. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Not my joy. My joy is not my strength because there's a lot of different types of joy you can have. So peace is, again, a gift of Christ. And with that, let's get uh, let's back up to chapter 14 of St. John. And read that verse again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So it is an inner peace or inner repose and quietness, even in the face of adverse circumstances. It defies human understanding. Now let's do a little check here. If there's a constant restlessness in your spirit, a a wrestling match going on on the inside, a tug of war, one minute you're over here, the next minute you're, Flesh pull you this way. The next minute, the spirit pulls you this way. The next minute, the world pulls you that way. That's not peace. You're not centered. If you're in that state, there's a breach of peace that needs to be repaired. You are lacking in one of the qualifying markers as a child of the prince of peace. We say we're his children, right? Well, if he's the Prince of Peace, then all to have whatever he has belongs to me. If he has peace, if he is the the author of peace, then I ought to have what he is the author of. 
This peace marker is evidence that the spirit is in control of your life. Many of the graces that we just talked about that the Holy Spirit empowers within the believer are usually purposely listed in a particular order. They, they build up. Typically, the foundational graces must be laid first in order to give a solid base upon which the subsequent graces can stand and work freely without collapsing. In this case, if there is a lack of peace, we must back up, take a step back and examine our joy. And even further, let's go back to the love. However, we, we can't just look within ourselves for it. we have to look and depend on the Holy Ghost. Remember, because it's the fruit of the spirit. Sometimes we, we see something wrong. We say, OK, now what's wrong with me? Then we look in ourselves and we try to search and we try to pull all these things out of ourselves that, number one, are not in us. Because we're accessing it from a fleshly side, we have to look to the spiritual side of us. And the, the pain in that now is that, like she said, you start to see all the ugliness. Because whenever you dig deep in the spiritual realm, God, the first thing he's going to show you is you. The first thing, Lord, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's what David said when they had a real tabernacle. But the first thing before you went through the door, they had a looking glass. Which a lot of people don't talk about when they talk about the tabernacle because they like being on the inside. But before you get on the inside, the first thing you got to do is you, you see yourself. It was a mirror at the door of the tabernacle. I want to get to the Holy of Holies and now I want the blood on the mercy seat and we can have a time. But have you looked at yourself? That's the word. The, the word reflects who you really are. And when you get to a place where you don't want to read the word, don't want to hear the word, the, the word should, should be our life source. We, we can't get to the place where it becomes old and stale. Because the Bible says that his word is living. The words that I speak are life. It, it never dies. As, as long as there's life, there, there's transformation. There's, there's a circle of life going on in the word. What one scripture did for you 10 years ago could do something all over again right now. The same scripture. You could say, wow. I was reading the scripture that said, uh, when the when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will take up a standard. So I go and read. That's okay. Well, what does the scripture really mean? So I go and start studying it, and I, I start real naturally. I start reading above it, and he's taught. He's he's giving Israel a good tongue lash and telling them how awful they are, how they don't stand for right, how they don't stand for justice. The peace that we talked about that's tied to justice, and he says. That because of that, the anger of the Lord is going to be kindled against them, which is we know is Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. He, he's given them prophecy. Now, whenever we look at Israel, what they have naturally, we have spiritually in the church. So whenever we look at them in a natural standpoint, their position, their attitude toward God, we have to bring that into the church in a spiritual standpoint because it, it always links together. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, the enemy that he talked about, if you look at it in, in the Hebrew, he's not talking about the devil. 
the enemy that he's talking about is God's vengeance coming against them. That was the enemy that's going to come in like the flood. But the spirit of the Lord can cause the God's wrath, the enemy of their soul to be dispersed. He will take up a standard. That's you and I when we got filled with the Holy Ghost. That was the thing that stopped God's wrath in your life. See, we think about the devil way more than Jesus thinks about the devil because when he snatched the keys, it was done for him. We the ones sitting around the devil this and the devil that and the devil this, the enemy. and The greatest enemy that we need fear is God's wrath. The devil can't do any more to you than God's wrath can. This is where the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. She talked about getting wisdom. Before you get there, you have to reverence God and his word. Remember that fruit isn't grown for admiration. It is grown for consumption. It is meant for someone to pluck off. Eat and digest. That's what fruit is for. You don't grow an apple tree and say, look at my beautiful apples. Because the longer you look and stare at those apples, they'll start rot, rotting right before your eyes. Some of us have some things that are rotting in our life because we just sat up there and just watched it grow. It was beautiful as it came on the tree. But as people came by and wanted to start plucking off your fruit, you would slap the hand. Get away from me. Why do you think God grew the fruit in you? He grew it so they could come and pluck it off of you. Now we're going to test your patience. That's why peace comes before patience in the, in the fruit of the spirit. Can you allow people to pluck off your fruit? Can you allow the enemy to come by and just pluck off your fruit? Just make sure that your soul is being watered by the word so you can yield more fruit. Now, when he talked about fruit with the disciples, there's three stages. He said, I'm giving you my spirit so that you can, number one, yield fruit. Then he says later in the in the passage, I want you to yield more fruit. And then later in the passage, he said, I want you to yield much fruit. So the 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 growth in the saint as he goes through life, the more tests and trials you go through, the more fruit that's plucked off of your tree, you should be able to yield more the next time around. The next season should give you more fruit. So by the end of the saint's life, we can say, wow, that dude had much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. He, he shows the same thing in the, in the uh, vine. When the vine is, grows its grapes, he comes by and he shears it off. But he shears it in such a way to next time it grows even more because now the vine is, the, the base of the vine is starting to get bigger. The bigger that gets, the more grapes you get. God's calling us to, to grow here. Your goal is to feed as many passers-by as possible. As someone who is standing up, and the Bible calls us trees of righteousness. I believe it's Isaiah chapter 55, if I'm not mistaken. When he talks about uh, fasting, is not this the fast that the Lord has required? 
Not that you push back your plate to try to show your flesh that it needs to suffer. But the fast that the Lord requires is that you put evil out of your lives. He said, then you'll be transformed in. Then you'll start to witness for me. Then you'll be called the trees of righteousness. You're blossoming. That, that's when you start to grow. So our goal is to feed as many pastors by as possible. It's not to keep as many people away. God planted us in the earth. You are the salt of the earth. The, the reason the earth is being preserved is because of you. God is able to cause fruit to grow in every season. In fact, we're going to see that once you get so deep in God, your seasons start to overlap. We'll get to the scripture in the Old Testament where the season overlaps those that have peace. Philippians 4. Let's talk about worry for a minute. And this I'm going to read from the Living Bible Translation. Philippians 4 verse number 6 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about it. Pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answers. If you do this, you will experience God's peace. Which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will keep your hearts and your thoughts quiet and at rest as you trust in Christ Jesus. How many of us need our thoughts and our hearts quiet? Let's go back to this. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answer. Now, we only want to thank him when the answer is yes. This is where we get to the scripture that, that Natalie quoted earlier. In everything, give thanks. He didn't say for everything, give thanks. He said in everything. Why? Because when I'm in something, the only thing that matters is Christ is with me. As long as he's with me, I ought to be able to give some thanks. Now, I don't like the situation I'm in. I could be in it without him. But the fact that he's in it with me is, is, is enough for me to muster up a thank you, Jesus. I don't like the way this feels, but Lord, I thank, I thank you that you have answered my prayer. Sometimes you don't even, the, the answer hasn't manifested in your life yet. But I think when Jesus prayed, one of the first things out of his lip was, Lord, God, Father, I thank you that you hear me. That was the opening to his prayer. Ours is, oh, Lord, humbly I bow down, <laughs> knee bent and heavy heart. <laughs> First thing Jesus said is, Father, I'm thankful because you hear me. You, you got to believe that he hears you, because if you don't, then you're wasting your own prayer time, which is why I believe some of us don't pray like we should. As often as we should. I mean, any in any war, any battle, the first thing that the enemy goes after is your communication center. That's why earlier I said you got to open up your mouth. That's the fruit of your lips. Offer him. God's looking for some fruit to plug off of us and we won't open our mouths and give it to him. But we want him to bless us. Lord, 
just do it again. Well, I want to do it, but you got to you got to receive. If you want something, you got to reach out, hold up your hand, hold out your hands, and grab it. Can't nobody give you nothing with your arms clenched. You're not in a, you're not in a position to receive. You're too tense. You don't have peace. So Paul here he gives us a he he gives us the answer. The way to peace is through prayer and supplication. We think that the way to peace is that he needs to fix my problem first and then I'll have some peace. The fact that I have a God that hears me and will answer me, that gives me enough peace to go on and finish my course. Like the the Hebrew boys, if he doesn't deliver me, he's worthy. He's able to do it. They had that peace. Throw me in the fire. I don't care. Here, Paul has given us the key to obtain not only peace, but a peace that is rather mind boggling. The peace that God gives is a peace that the natural mind cannot comprehend. It can only be understood by a spiritual mind. Our problem is that we want to we want an understandable peace. I want a peace that I can intellectually break down and dissect. I want a peace that I can break it down and say and have my bullet points ready and say, this is why I'm so peaceful. But the peace that God wants to give you is the peace where folks look at your bullet points and say, you have no reason to be happy. I don't know what you're so joyful about. In in today's society, the, the, the way depression has infiltrated mankind this marker is going to be important for the church because people are going to want need to look at us and say, wow. We've been in a recession all these years and. You know, they, they're not driving a Bentley. But there's something about them. People that look at us, that brush up against us, they will know. And I'm not talking about because you're smiling all the time. I'm talking the, the, the real nitty gritty. I'm talking about spiritually. The sinner spirit can pick up a saint's peaceful spirit. They don't know how to verbalize. They don't know what phrase to use. They don't know the church lingo. They just want to know. What is it about you? If we've never had anybody do that and say that to us, then we need to really question. Because folks are not really interested in what you say. They're interested in who you are. So this piece that Paul talks about here, he says it keeps our thoughts and our minds, our hearts quiet. All right. Now let's go to the Old Testament. Let's get Leviticus 26. We go read quite a few verses here. Starting in verse number one, he says. You must have no idols. You must never worship carved images, obelisk or shaped stones. For I am the Lord your God. You must obey my Sabbath laws of rest and reverence my tabernacle, for I am the Lord. Okay, now he's talking to Israel, which they had a tabernacle. And the Sabbath rest was a, every seven days they rested. They didn't work. Now for the church spiritually, that means to honor the Holy Ghost that's in you. That's the Sabbath rest. And reverence my tabernacle. His tabernacle is your body. All right. If you obey all my commandments, I will give you regular rains 
And the Lord will yield bumper crops and the trees will be loaded with fruit long after the normal time. And grapes will be still ripening when sowing time comes again. You shall eat your fill and live safely in the land, for I will give you peace and you will go to sleep without fear. I will chase away the dangerous animals. You will chase your enemies. They will die beneath your swords. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you, 10,000. You will defeat all of your enemies. I will look after you and multiply you and fulfill my covenant with you. You will have such a surplus of crops that you won't know what to do with them when the new harvest is ready. And I will live among you and not despise you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would be slaves no longer. I have broken your chains so that you can walk with dignity. So he says here, don't worry about seasons. Sometimes we... we kind of want the Lord just to give me enough for this season. He's telling you here that if you, if you fall in love with me, I'll make your seasons overlap. By the time it's time for you to plant, you won't be finished reaping from the last season. This is why we started, got to stop slapping people. We, we think, oh, I just can't take no more from this person. God has said, no, you're going, you're going to take a little more. And in the end, you'll realize, wow, I took all that and then some and still got peace. He causes your seasons to overlap. Anybody ever been there? I'm, I'm done with this situation. And God speaks to you, says, oh, you know what? Don't talk so fast. <laughs> like our prayer should be, Lord, just give me peace for today. Whatever I'm in right at this particular moment, just, just give me peace. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Romans 5. Verse number 1 says, So now, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith in his promises, we can have real peace with him because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. For because of our faith, he has brought us into this place of highest privilege, where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to actually becoming all that God had in mind for us to be. You got to have peace in order for you to enter a place to where now my son, my daughter can be what I'm calling for. There's a preparation stage. Before any surgery, there, there's preparatory steps that they have to take. There's a whole lot of stuff they got to go through. He's telling you here that all the stuff that he did for us, all the promises that he gave to us, brought us to a place to where we could, number one, receive him. And then once we said, okay, yes, Lord, we say yes to your will, yes to your way. Okay, now I got some stuff in mind for you. We thought that the saying yes was what he had in mind. This is just the beginning. Verse three, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to be patient. Isn't that something that right after he says, okay, now we can move on to what God is, wants you to be. You could do that. The next thing he says, by the way, you could be happy in tribulation. <laughs> Lord, I thought we were moving on to the blessings. The, you know, this is my season. 
you're right. This is your season. There is a time and a season for everything. We got to stop listening to the Jack Leg preachers uh, on television that the only season that, that ever mattered, that, that God only lives in the prosperous season. I mean, you, you got to think God, number one, created earth. Am I right? Does not earth still have all four seasons? He never stopped and said, OK, you know what? I'm just going to go and just let it be summer all year round. It wouldn't work because he's already put it in the land that there has to be a season of rain in order for the land to yield its food. All the season have purposes and usually the benefits of those seasons we don't see for another two seasons. In the winter, we, man, I sure would give for a good watermelon. You can't get a good watermelon in the winter. You got to wait for the summer. But it was the winter rain that caused that watermelon to grow through the spring. Then in the summer, you could go and pick that ripe green, bright red, sweet watermelon. So he tells us, number one, you could be all that God has in mind for you to be. Then you say, okay, now rejoice when you run into problems and trials. Verse number four, and patience develops strength of character in us and helps us trust God more each time we use it until finally our hope and faith are strong and steadfast. Then what happens, I'm sorry, then when that happens, we are able to hold our heads high no matter what happens and know that all is well. Now, we can appreciate the scripture when all is actually well according to our standards. But he's saying that no matter what's going on, you should always be in a position where you can hold your head up high and say God is in control. And when we don't do that, it's because deep down inside, we don't believe God is in control. We believe that God has left us for the devil to have his way with us. And he cannot leave you. Cannot. He can't leave you because his word says he won't. For we know how dearly God loves us, do we? Really. And we feel his warm love everywhere within us because God has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The presence of the Holy Ghost let you know how much God loves us. All right, now, let's deal with a few little struggles here. When you're in a time when you don't have peace, your spirit is troubled. Remember that word, annoyed? Just annoyed. I like that word because that really hit home with me. Because I get annoyed sometimes. But sometimes it's because we're struggling with God. We fight against his will because it doesn't feel good. Or maybe we had in our mind how our past should look. We, we, we tell God how this thing ought to work. Now remember, the way to peace is through prayer and supplication. But instead of prayer and supplication, we enter into a Job phase. So we say, Lord, I don't know if the plan is right. You got the wrong plan here. I don't do, I don't deserve this. 
And then we, we get prideful. Lord, all that I've done for you. I mean, I, I, I've told people, I invited people to church. Yeah, I, I've been witnessing. I've been sharing my testimony. Oh, and I, I don't deserve this. So we struggle with God. We re- we're like Jacob. We, we wrestle with God. Then some of us, we struggle within ourselves. I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to say some of us because this is, this is where life meets all of us. We struggle within ourselves. We're double-minded, which renders us incapable of even receiving genuine blessings from God. The Bible says that a man that is unstable, double-minded, there's no sense in him praying because if he prays in that double-minded state, I can't give him anything. I only work through faith. And faith says, I'm coming to you because, Lord, I thank God. I thank you, Father, that you hear me. And I thank you for your answer. Whatever your answer is, I thank you for it. Many of us have been saved quite a few years in this room at least. We should, get, we should be at the place where, Lord, if your answer is no, I bless your name anyway. We should be there. We, we shouldn't be 20 years in the kingdom of God throwing temper tantrums because God didn't answer the way you wanted him to answer. Well, because, Lord, you, you didn't work this out the way I think you should have worked it out. Then we struggle with each other. Quarreling and jealousy and competitions cannot be born from the fruit of the spirit. That don't come from God. The Bible says that where there's gossip and all of this stuff, he said there is no lack of every evil deed. When you get in a place to where you're always arguing and fighting and fussing, the Bible says you're in a place where evil deeds are going for you're in a place where malice. The enemy is just in there. Just just and sometimes it ain't the enemy. It's you. Sabotaging your own life. So like Jacob and Esau, there's a struggle to be first. Neither of the boys in the womb preferred the other one. And guess what? That fight kept on in the world. Jacob didn't want Esau to have it. Esau didn't want Jacob to have it. And we had a loss of 20, 25, 30 years of them just acting a fool, running from each other, fearing one another. Every place that Jacob ended up and all the the wells he did, although God blessed him, he was doing it from a wrong place. He was doing it out of fear of his brother. Not out of reverence for God. Sometimes you operate in fear. You could be doing what we think is the right thing. The antics of it are right, but your motive is wrong. And that's the thing that God's way. Why are you doing what you do? Why are you going where you go? So if we realize that God is rich in mercy and has abundant blessings, we would understand that there's plenty to go around. So some of us think that God's going to run out of blessings. Like if we don't get that blessing... The Bible says that he is rich in mercy. He's able to give you. And not only that, he'll make he'll make yours just for you. See, in the in the uh, wealthy world, you know, you you've reached it when you can have all your suits tailor made. 
You know, you don't go shopping at, you don't even go to Nordstrom. You don't go to Saks. You go to the tailor and you stand up on them and they take your measurements. That's, that's what God wants to do for you. And custom make it for you. Everything fits perfectly. If somebody else wanted to wear it, it wouldn't really fit them as perfect as it fits you. Matthew chapter 6. Verse number 25. This is the Living Bible Translation. So my counsel is, don't worry about things, food, drink, and clothes, for you already have life and a body, and they are far more important than what to eat and wear. Now, how many of us have ever been down and out and say, well, I thank Lord I got life in a body. <laughs> Lord, I need that suit. I, I really need. You, ain't, you are not dying. Sometimes we just act like we dying. <laughs> because we don't, we don't believe that the way the Lord sustains is approvable. It, it, it doesn't meet our requirements. Look at the birds, verse 26. They don't worry about what to eat. They don't need to sow or reap or store up food. For your heavenly father feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than they are. Will all your worries add a single moment to your life? All of your worries put together. Somebody 40 years old. Take 40 years of worry. Put them all in, in one picture. Did it change the outcome one iota? Yet, even the doctors tell us that worry can kill you. They're telling you that worry will kill you physically, but God is saying in your word, worry will kill you spiritually. And why worry about your clothes? Look at the field lilies. They don't worry about theirs. Yet King Solomon in all his glory was not clothed as beautifully as they. Now, he, here's a man where the queen had to come for her stuff and say, I've heard about this Solomon. Everybody... You know, they, they, I don't know if they had Vogue magazine or whatever back then, but somehow she got the message that King Solomon was a baller. She said, yeah, I ain't going to believe that. I, there's no way that somebody can have this much. Y'all putting a little something on this. She said, but when I got there, she said the half had not been told. I mean, this man was really living in some wealth. But he says he didn't compare to the flower that God grew from the rain. Now, us today, I would ask you, would you rather be like a lily or would you rather be like Solomon? And most of us would say, I'd rather be like Solomon. And Jesus says that the lily is favored over Solomon because it's that simplistic, God-given beauty. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you, O men of little faith. So don't worry at all about having enough food and clothing. Why be like the heathen? For they take pride in all these things and are deeply concerned about them. But your heavenly father already knows perfectly well that you need them. And he will give them to you if you give him first place in your life and live as he wants you to do. Then he says here, so don't be anxious about tomorrow. God will take care of your tomorrow too. live one day at a time. So I'm, I ask, what is your testimony? Our, our struggling and our disturbed spirits. Don't you know that speaks volumes? Our worry tells God and others that his promises are not true. 
we make God a liar by devaluing ourselves. Remember, he just told them, when you worry about who you are, you're devaluing who I say you are. When you, when you get the notion, I don't love you, I don't care about you, you're, you're saying that what I said about you is not true. And it's linked. If you don't believe what God says about himself, you're prone not to believe what he says about you. Because you've already said he's a liar. Not like she said, these are not things we say. We don't say, Lord, you're lying. But our actions show. When we worry, your action says, God, you're a liar. You're not in control. You don't have my best interest at heart. You don't care for me. And quite frankly, I don't even believe you're here with me. If you're up in the middle of the night with stress, anxiety, and, and you can't sleep, something is wrong with your peace. You've called God a liar. You're not in the right place. The Bible says, I will lay me down, I believe it's Psalm 4, and, and sleep in peace. So we make God a liar, devalue ourselves. He has clearly stated that our value far exceeds that of birds and flowers, which he sees to the preservation of. We are confessing that God is not in control. Maybe we think he never was in control. Maybe we think that he's lost control. Or maybe he can't work out his own plan for our, your life. Our worrying attempts to make things our business that belong to God alone. You're butting into God's business when you start to worry about the things that you're supposed to give over to him to take care of in the first place. You can't have two equals at the top. There's only one God. You can't have people with the exact same power at the top because guess what? The minute they disagree, the whole program's going to be messed up. And when you put yourself on God's level, the reason our, li- our spirits are so annoyed when things happen in our life is because you put yourself on God's plane. That's pride. That's not your business to worry about how your welfare is going to be. That's God's business. And if you think it is your business, then you have no faith. Because contained within faith is 125% trust. 200% trust. 500% trust. You have to give it over to him. And believe that he has it in his hand. That he's in control. That he hears your prayer. And that with that, you could go to sleep at night and wake up the next morning and say, wow, that was some beautiful sleep. Because by standing up and worrying, the only thing you've hurt is your own spirit, your own body. Now you're tired. You can't work. You're irritable because you didn't sleep. Got an attitude with everybody. The minute somebody says something to you, you blowing up at them. That's when your inner peace starts to fester out. And then with the fruit of the spirit, We can't get past the first triad because we're still working with love, joy, and peace. Forget patience. I ain't got patience. He says that we can't change anything by worrying. This suggests that by our worry, we are attempting to change things. And some of us, if you're going to, like they say, if you're going to do something, you might as well go on and do it all the way. Now, we think that by worrying, we're going to change something. At least you could do is try to act on the worry. You ain't going to do nothing, but you're just going to sit there and think your problem to death. That's what worrying is. You, you have no action behind your worry, but you think it ought to change. 
It's like a man wake up in the morning. I, th- I think I'm going to get rich, but won't go get a job. Stop. It's easy for me to say. I, I give you that. But this is where God wants us. This is where the Holy Ghost is trying to get us. We are usurping his will, his foreknowledge, his wisdom, his provision, and his love when we worry. Proverbs 3. Verse number 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. All right, now, the word trust here means to lie helpless, face down. Now, doesn't this word sound a lot like proskuneo, the Hebrew word for worship? Lie face down like you're helpless. It pictures a servant waiting for the master's command in readiness to obey. Or a defeated soldier yielding himself to the conquering general. The Holy Ghost is trying to take over your life. You're lying down. Your trust, lie down. Trust in the Lord. That means just lie down. You can't help yourself. He says, trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Heart in the Hebrew refers to one's emotions, but more often to his intellect, such as understanding, discernment, reflection, or will. Then he says, lean not to your own understanding. If you have a peace that could be understood, it probably isn't from God. It's man-made. Because God just does things that don't make natural sense. In the spiritual realm, within us. Only he, he got to be in a man that, that looks on his murderers and the man looks up and says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's got to be God, because most of us are like, Lord, kill him. Strike him with lightning right now. Prove that you're God. Now, with, with Stephen, we could say, okay, Lord, prove that you're God and stop them from doing what they're doing. But God proved that he was God a whole nother way. Because the Bible says Stephen looked in the heavens and saw God standing, saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne. That was the same proof that we would otherwise say, Lord, strike him dead. So why isn't God's glory enough for us to say, wow, Lord, you really answered my prayer? Because we wanted some other different form of show. We wanted to prove otherwise. To lean, lean not to your own understanding now. To lean means to support oneself fully upon or to lean on anything so as to be supported by it. If the object upon which one is leaning were to move or give away, one would utterly fall. Anybody ever lean on just completely all your weight? Now, if this podium were to move, I'm in a position to where I will fall flat on my face. Some of us are leaning on our own understanding like this. Your entire weight, all of who you are, is based on your intellect. Because we think we're so smart and bright. Don't lean to your own understanding. God is our rock, 
a sure foundation. He will never move. He cannot leave or forsake us. How strange it is for an omnipotent God to possess such an inability. The thing is, he cannot be moved. He is solid, the most solid foundation that you will ever find. And if you build your life on him, you're safe. No matter what comes your way. Then he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. How many of us know the pain of someone not acknowledging us? How many have done something in life? The, some of us bear this from, from our childhood. Daddy never acknowledged me. He never said, I love you. He never said, son, daughter, I'm proud of you. It's hurtful not to be acknowledged. God is telling you, you're not acknowledging me when you lean to your own understanding. All of your support is on what you think and not what I say. So if we feel that bad when people don't acknowledge us, how do we think God feels when his power and his willingness we just cast aside? Not only does he have the power, but he wants to do his work in you. But he can't. His hands are tied when there's no faith and trust. And then he says, he'll direct your paths. Our paths will only be directed after we acknowledge him and relinquish our understanding. He doesn't direct us on a path, but he directs the path itself. This is when you got to start reading scripture slowly. Acknowledge him. He'll direct He didn't say, I'll tell you the right way to go. He says, the way that you're on, I'll transform. I'll direct the path. I'll tell the path where to lead you. You can stay on it. But I'm going to get on the path and I'm going to start clearing some stuff out the way. He directs the path. He tells the path to clear itself of all debris, hindrances, and stumbling blocks. He speaks to a crooked path and commands it to straighten out. He said, I'll make the crooked way straight and I'll make a way where there seemeth to be no way. He's talking to paths. Because Jeremiah 10 and 23 says that the way of man is not in himself. We think we can find our own way. So our prayer must be, Lord, restore my peace. How can two walk together except they agree? Amos says. Now picture two people who are bound together. You're bound together. Can't get loose. And you're attempting to reach the same goal. How is it going to work if one person thinks left is the right way to go and the other person thinks right is the right way to go? You're bound together. So as long as you guys have a difference of opinion... You ain't going nowhere. We are joined with Christ, or better yet, Christ is joined to us. We will never reach our intended destination as long as we resist his direction. We must relinquish our assumptions of the right direction. And as Job's friend told him, this is found in Job 22 and 21. He tells Job, quit quarreling with God. Agree with him. And at last, 
you will have peace and his favor will surround you. The sinner, the, the, the unfaithful friend told you something got to be, it, it can't be God. It got to be something wrong with you. You're fighting against God. You have no peace. And the strange thing about this is, this is after Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is it possible that Jacob had, I mean, that, that Job had a church lingo that he really didn't believe? Maybe he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. But his friend said, man, you fighting against God. You quarreling. You ain't, you ain't really straight with all this stuff being taken from you. And after that, Job said, Lord, I don't deserve this. Then that pride comes in. Psalm 119, 165. He says here, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall be scandal, snare or stumbling block to them to entangle them either in guilt or grief. No event of providence shall be either an invincible temptation or an intolerable affliction to them. But their love to the word of God shall enable them both to hold fast their integrity and to preserve their tranquility. They will make the best of that which is and not quarrel with anything that God does. Nothing shall offend or hurt them for everything shall work for good to them and therefore shall please them and they shall reconcile themselves to it. That's Matthew Henry's commentary. Some of us, we got to say, Lord, I, I need to repent for being offended by what you were trying to do on my behalf. Now let's get peace at its best right here. Last scripture, Mark 4. We're going to read verses 35 to 41. As evening fell, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took him just as he was and started out, leaving the crowds behind, though other boats followed. But soon a terrible storm arose. High waves began to break into the boat until it was nearly full of water and about to sink. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Frantically, they wakened him, shouting, Teacher, don't you even care that we are all about to drown? Then he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Quiet down. And the wind fell, and there was a great calm. And he asked them, Why were you so fearful? Don't you even yet have confidence in me? And they were filled with awe and said among themselves, Who is this man? that even the winds and the seas obey him. Sometimes when we think our worry and our, and our, our franticness is justified, sometimes that's the moment when God says, wow, look at you. But Lord, seriously, now, Lord, it's in your word. It's even recorded for, for history that this boat was taken on water. And about to sink. He allowed that to be part of, of, of the testimony that we could read it now in 2011. The boat was taken on water. 
and about to sink. Most of them say, yeah, man, you had you had cause to worry. Jesus is telling them you don't have a right to worry. Because before we got in this boat, you witnessed me do all kind of miraculous things. See, some of us are good with observing some stuff that God has done, but we don't want to get in the boat with him and have trouble come our way after the fact. We'd like to stand at a distance and say, whoa, that's a miracle worker there. Look what he did for, for that man. Look what he did for that demon-possessed child. Look, look at him go. He turned water into wine. Powerful God. It, in fact, he was just healing. And not only that, after this, he goes and cast out another demon. He's working miracles, but sometimes we don't realize he's in the ship. The Bible says he went to sleep. Now, he was living what at that time they could only quote. They could go back to Psalm 4 and say, I will lay me down and go to sleep in peace. They could quote it, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus is on the ship living Psalm 4, and they're saying, Lord, how could you live your word? You got the nerve to want to be spiritual now. By laying your head down. And the Bible had to add, on a cushion. (laughs) That's some real peace. Now, not only was he asleep, but he was comfortable. Jesus right now in the midst of whatever you're going through, he's comfortable. You're the one running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He's comfortable. And he's telling you, lay down with me. Rest with me. Now, the crazy thing about this is. He tells them you have no faith and then still works it out for them. Number one, he rebuked the wind, and then he spoke to the sea. Those are two different words. That'll be your homework assignment. Go look up the Greek words for the rebuke and the speak. Now, you would think that since the wind was the thing that was driving the sea, he would speak to the wind, since that was the causing force of it all. But he spoke to the thing that was being affected by the wind. And when he spoke to the thing that was being affected by the wind, I believe that in a way he was also trying to speak peace to the disciples. See, sometimes we got to really pay attention when Jesus is speaking that he's trying to do things on several realms at the same time. I think he was trying to tell them and, and the Greek suggestion of the work when he said word when he said he rebuked the wind and told the sea to shut up. That the Greek suggests that by the time he finished the statement, it was already done. So the the, the wind and the waves were not really obeying his speech. They were obeying his thought. The speech was for the disciples. Peace. Be still. God is saying to you and I, stuff is rocking and reeling, but he's saying peace. He's trying to speak peace. And in the Bible times, peace was not only a greeting, but it was a sight. It was you said it going in and you said it coming out. We say it. Peace. 
We don't we? What do you say? All right, all right, homie. Peace. <laughs> but in the Bible times, that's how they greeted one another and said goodbye. They spoke peace to one another. When he, when he got up from the grave, he entered the room and they were still afraid. I told you I was going to get up. Now the women have come and told you that I got up. Now you still afraid. Peace be unto you. When Paul wrote his letters to the church, peace. God wants us to be at peace. And the Bible says there was a great calm. Great calm happens when he speaks. If you don't have great calm, not just to un- remember, great, that that surpasses all understanding. You don't understand it, why your calm is so great. So we have to rest in Jesus. If he sleeps, you should be sleeping in him. The body does what the head directs it to do. Jesus says it's time for some rest, even in the midst of a tempestuous storm. Trust in him. Lie down. With Jesus. Trust him with your whole heart. The most dangerous thing in this situation wasn't the wind. It wasn't the waves. It wasn't the ship singing. The most dangerous thing in this chapter here was their unbelief. Because that was the only thing that diminished God's power. He has power over everything that will submit to him. But to us, he gave us free will. But he says, you have the free will to say yes or nay to my will. We are to lie down with him. The most dangerous thing was their fear, which caused them to question, number one, whether the Lord was even concerned with their web. Lord, don't you even care? The fact that you're asleep shows me. Now, the fact that he was asleep should have showed them, oh, he's okay. If he's all right with this, I should be all right with this. But they said, you resting and sleeping like this when my life is in danger proves to me you don't even care that we're about to die. Yeah, I'm going to need you to get up and do something about this. So if we look at the peace that he has in this boat, then we could go back to the other scripture and says, my peace the peace that allowed me to lay in the back of that boat is the peace that I want to give you. He's verbalizing his will. When people die, they write wills. Most people want to know, what did daddy leave me? Jesus is telling you and I, I left you peace. That's what I wrote to you in my will. Peace. Some people get what the what the person left them and say, ah, she should have left me more than that. I was nice to Aunt Mildred. <laughs> I used to go drive her to the store. That's all she could leave me was a vase. <laughs> you ain't work for none of it. But Jesus says, I'm writing, I'm going to write my will. He says, and the thing that I want to leave with you before I get out of here is not just peace, 
But the peace that allowed me to sleep in the bottom of that ship as the storm was raging is the peace that I want to give to you. And we should be walking in the same peace that Jesus walked in while he was on earth.